we start with the secret pay raises for Surrey City Councilors. 2.3% councilors voted to give themselves a raise in a secret meeting. The backlash growing now. Some councilors say they will donate their raise to charity. Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I know this is the kind of stuff that drives her right up the wall. And uh, she's not alone. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about the, this raise now. So with this 2.3% per, 2. top-up, uh, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum will now make 156000 a year. Surrey City Councillors will make a shade under 80000 a year. What do you think about these raises? Well, especially right now, uh, a lot of people find this to be unacceptable. Uh, most of us during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, had our salaries slashed. Uh, many of us lost our jobs, actually. And so to see politicians turn around and not only vote themselves a raise, but vote themselves a raise in secret, uh, that really erodes public trust. Uh, people don't think that that's fair, by and large. And so it's really disappointing to see this. And what's what's really sad is that, you know, after the fact, they're now saying, oh, well, we had to go in camera because of policies. You know, wow. I'll yell, you know, I'll yell it through cupped hands. These folks make these policies. They cannot turn around and say, oh, well, it's policy or it's a bylaw. They're the ones in charge. It is their responsibility. Yeah, no, it's not like they're required to vote on their own pay raises in secret. They could no. have stood up. They could have stood up at an open council meeting in front of everyone, in front of the voters and citizens of Surrey, and said, "Look, we're taking the money. That's it." That's right. Yeah. There's not some omnipotent decider in the sky that yeah. is telling them to do this. Yeah, you don't need this sneaking around stuff. Like, have the jam. If you're going to take the money, stand up and just take the slings and arrows. Yep. Take what's take what's coming to you, okay? Take your lumps. If you want to take the money, take the lumps. That's like right. stand stand up and take it instead of this uh, sneaking around stuff. Now let me uh, let me play this for you, Chris. This is um, from the extraordinary interview that uh, Linda Steele did this week with Surrey City Councilor Allison Patton, and uh, she was asked whether it was uh, inappropriate to have this meeting to give themselves a pay raise uh, behind closed doors and. Have a listen to how that went down. HR issues are in closed council. That's common practice in numbers of councils. That's all of the comments I have. Okay. But if you want to talk about our EV strategy, our plastic shopping bag ban, our Tree City of the World award, I would be very happy to talk about that anytime. Okay. I really don't, actually. But let me ask you this. Uh, your fellow councillors, Linda Anna, Stephen Pettigrew, uh, Jack Hundile, all said they're going to donate their raise money to charity. What are you planning on doing? I have no comment. As I said, I, I don't talk about these issues that were enclosed. Okay, uh, she's saying she can't talk about it because it was in a secret meeting. But like we, like you said, there was no, there's no co anything compelling them to go in camera as they say to do this. They could have done it in open camera. I mean, other other councils have done the same thing, right? They've given themselves given themselves a raise, but they do it in public. Yeah, they do it in public. Uh, we saw this happen in Kelowna, and they said, you know what, you know, paraphrasing, you know, some people have not done well during the pandemic, but other people have, and we're getting a raise. Um, you know, at least you're coming out and saying so. Uh, what, what boils down here is, you know, I'm shocked, frankly, hearing that councillor say that. Uh, number one, they're answerable to the taxpayer because they're the ones who are their employers and they're the ones paying their salaries, the taxpayer. And so if Linda Steele is asking her questions based on that, she should answer them. Yeah. So she should be answerable to those questions. And no, so I mean, furthermore, if people... 
Go she ahead. did herself well. She did herself more harm than good. There, I mean, you know, uh, there's the old saying in politics: when you're in the hole, like, stop digging. Okay, like exactly. when 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 you're caught, just stand up and answer the questions. Because if you can continue to evade and duck and bob and weave like that, you're just making it worse for yourself. Right? Yeah, just face the music. And so, oh, yeah. further to this, we need tools. And so, this is why we think we need recall legislation mm-hmm. at local city governments. We already have it in British Columbia at the provincial level, and we should be proud. We're the only ones in Canada that have recall legislation at the provincial level. So we should mirror that for city halls. And so if, and that's a big if, if people are ticked off by those sorts of comments and this sort of behavior, they can fire them between elections. And consequently, if they earnestly do think that they deserve that raise and people are happy and they say, you know what, good job, they'll pass. It'll be fine. Okay, you mentioned in Kelowna the councillors there got a recent pay raise, and they didn't really make any bones about it. They just said, you, you know, look, we're working harder here. I mean, we yeah. we deserve the money. Let me play this for you, Chris, get your take. This is uh, the mayor of Kelowna, Colin Bazaran. This is after they uh, got, their, got their raise, and here's how he explained it. To those critics, I would say that as a result of the pandemic, council's workload hasn't changed, and in fact, I'd say it's probably the work has gotten harder. Um, and so I, I don't believe there's a reason at this point for council to uh, not move forward uh, implementing the policy or making changes to it at this time. Okay, he's just saying we're taking the money and that's it. <laughs> implementing you know. the policy, though. I like how they well, put it yeah. that way. <laughs> taking a pay raise, implementing right. the policy. <laughs> but at least he's got the jam to stand up and say we're taking the, we're taking the money and we're taking it in public, and if you're not happy about it, you, you can certainly tell me, but we're not giving the money back. We're not giving it to charity. We're working harder. We're taking the raise. Exactly. And Let's then people can judge. People right. can judge. They can say, I don't like that, or I do like that, or somewhere in between. And they can take action. Yeah, I mean, uh, but for we, them to turn around and give themselves a pay raise in secret and then refuse to answer questions about it, uh, that's not cool. Right. Okay. Speaking of refusing to answer questions, let's go back to the Linda Steele interview here. I think this is like the definition of cringeworthy here as Linda tries to get some answers out of this Surrey City Councillor, Allison Patton. And uh, Linda asked her, What do you say to the taxpayers about this? I'm not going to comment, as I said. You do not think that taxpayers deserve to uh, hear what you think about a controversy that's been making news all day? Well, who made the controversy? That's maybe what they should ask. Okay, well, taxpayers then who got a 2.9% tax hike, should they be concerned that some of that money is going to go to pay increased salaries for council and the mayor? I'm not going to comment. Okay, just answer the question. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Making it worse for yourself. Um, Let me ask you this, Chris, just before we take a break, and then take some phone calls on this. But I sometimes, like, I think politicians actually get a bad rap to an extent because a lot of people, if they go into public office, they're giving up more lucrative opportunities in some cases, and they work hard. They take a lot of grief. And I think they actually deserve to be paid fairly. And... You know, when you say right now that, are are you saying that because of the pandemic, they should not get a raise at all, period? Correct. Yes. Uh, I'll put it this way. When you combine the provincial and federal debts, we're around $2 trillion right now. People, and this is a crazy stat in BC here, it's around 44% of people are within 200 bucks of insolvency every month of not being able to pay all their bills. That's from MNP. That's like a major, you know, uh, debt survey that happens, you know, quarterly. People don't have the money for this stuff. 
And so we're going to have to do things way differently now. And that includes politicians not taking pay raises. We're in the middle of a crisis. Back to the show as we take your calls now on the Surrey Council. Secret pay raises, 604-280-9898 is the number, star 9898 on your cell. Chris Sims is my guest. Let's go to your calls. Pete in Vancouver. Hey, Pete. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Two things. One about recall being an excellent idea. Um, you know, recently we are dealing with this Stanley Park bike lane, which is not a popular thing, but on this, the show yesterday, I think it was the steel show yesterday, uh, Dumont was just adamant he's putting it in regardless of the public thought. And I think his, his uh, attitude would be a little bit different if he knew he was up for recall. And then just one last point to your um, point about um, them getting me um, able to generate the uh, public because they're giving up uh, opportunities. I totally yeah. disagree. If you look at the makeup of Vancouver City Council, you've got Pete Fry, hasn't had a job in five years, Christine Boyle, Swanson, Stewart. No one's hiring. The only job they have is city council. That's the only option for them. Okay, thanks, Pete, for the call. Well, um, the recall thing, Chris, I mean, how would a recall work? I mean, we've got recall law at the provincial level, right? I mean, it's, I don't think it's ever been used successfully, though, right? It came very close, and he resigned. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it almost worked. And, you know, we'd like to see that threshold lowered, uh, but you need to start somewhere. What's the threshold, what's the threshold right now in the provincial it, law? It, I believe it's around 25%. So it's a pretty big, heavy thing where you have to go door-to-door and get people to sign you mean, up. You mean you gotta you got to sign up 25% of eligible voters on a in petition? That run riding exactly so which, which is like more difficult than it sounds it is more much more difficult yeah. than it sounds a lot of people wouldn't realize that and so it's around there we'd like to see it a little bit lower but what we like about it is that it's a deterrent it's a tool yeah. so people aren't completely helpless between elections let's go to paul on the open line in burnaby hey paul well i didn't think their uh, wages uh, was that uh, unreasonable when burnaby councillors earn more it's a big budget uh, series a big city if you and to blame the twenty trillion dollar debt on the councillors is sort of ridiculous. It's the public sector wages that are out of control, and you know uh, spending on bike lanes and that kind of thing. Uh, so just be more transparent about it. I thought the interview well, yeah. was ridiculous. Yeah, if you yeah. want your wage hike, defend it. Well, exactly. I mean, if you're going to take yeah. the money, stand up and take the money, and then take take the heat. Along, along with the money. I mean, that's, that's the way the system works. When you sort of go sneaking around and doing it behind closed doors, I think that's what really, well, that's certainly what I find the most offensive part of it. Taryn in Surrey. Hi. Hi. How are you guys? I'm good. Go ahead. Good. I just want to say, first of all, her, just the way she was answering the questions, I found it very rude. I'm a Surrey resident. I felt very disrespected that it was held behind closed doors and just yeah. her non-transparency at all, but what I really want to say is, especially when they ask, you know, what should Surrey residents, you know, what should they focus on? And she continued to go on about, well, all the good things that are happening and, yeah. and the positive, but I want to say that that's your job. That's yeah. already your job. So yeah. you, that should be happening. So if you feel you need a raise and you feel you're worthy of a raise, like I can't go to my boss and just be like, oh, I need a raise. You need to, I think we should be able to approve it or, or be able to be like, yes, you know what? You are worthy, but you're already doing your job. So for us to focus on that during a global pandemic when people are struggling, ridiculous. Thank you, Taryn, for the call. Yeah, the councillor wanted to talk about the plastic bag ban in the city of Surrey. They didn't want to talk about, about the raise. Let's go to Glenn in Maple Ridge. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Mike. I'm in the private sector, and when I heard this story when I first spoke, I went home to my family after work, and... We had a secret invoke, and yeah, yeah. we all agreed 100% unanimous that I deserve a raise. Oh, 
So I've put in a strongly worded letter to my employer that I expect this raise, and I'm not going to discuss it any further with him, and I expect the raise, and uh, uh, we won't talk about it any longer. That's kind of yeah, that's where I'm rolling. Okay, okay, Glenn, good luck with that. Uh, let me know how it works out. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Ron in Abbotsford. Hi, Ron. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I find uh, the ultimate in hypocrisy that uh, that a, a, a politician will take a raise but give it to give it to uh, charity, charity. As, yeah. as his goodwill gesture. He's getting a tax write-off, and it just proves that he doesn't need the raise in the first place. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, some of them are giving it the raise to charity, Chris. I mean, this is kind of like, I don't know, you you got your hand caught in the cookie jar mm-hmm. and uh well, now I'm not going to eat the cookie. You know, I'll give it I'll give the cookie to somebody else now. I I mean, what I would like to know is who voted for this raise. Like, we still don't know that, right? Like the vote the vote on this was held in secret and all they will say is it, it passed. They voted in favor of the raise, but I would like to know like was it a unanimous vote, do you know? No, they all should have that on record. And this is the thing. We ran into this at Metro Vancouver. Remember when they voted themselves that, you know, retirement bonus? And we didn't know. It was about 15 grand each. They had no record of it. Give us the records. This is all should all be public knowledge. Right. That was very similar situation. Done in secret. And then they don't want to even disclose who voted for it. Yeah. Yeah, That's outrageous. Let's go to Maureen in Nanaimo. Hi, Maureen. Hi. Uh, Hi. I just wanted to say I live in Nanaimo, and a few years ago, our brand-new council, before they'd done anything, voted themselves a raise. And people were quite up in arms. You know, that's not right. I even think it maybe it should be um, something put when we elect people so that this can be something you vote on every few years, whether or not people should have a raise before they're elected. Thank you for the okay. call. The way that some Thanks. councils do it, we just got about 30 seconds here, Chris, they put it out to like an independent panel to decide. Do you think that makes sense? It does in a sense, but also it should still be up to them whether or not to take it. So they can't throw their hands in the air and say, oh, well, it's being forced upon us. This automatic pay raise. There's nothing we can do. Uh, they can take it as an advisor. And I do want to give a shout out. Uh, Burnaby City Council cut their pay last year by oh. 10% and then donated that amount to a senior's meal charity. So there are nice. some good folks out there doing better things here. Chris, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the growing turmoil at the very top of Canada's military. You've got not one, but two former chiefs of the defense staff here, both under investigation for alleged misconduct. General Jonathan Vance and Admiral Art McDonald, both facing allegations, both have stepped aside. Now, that's incredible enough, but then you get this stunning committee testimony in Ottawa this week where a top official said he warned Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan about alleged sexual misconduct by Vance three years ago. Three years ago. He retired in December. Why was this allegation not properly investigated at the time? Who knew what and when? Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Karen McCrimmon. She's a Liberal MP for Canada, Canada Carleton. She's the chair of the National Defence Committee. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Thank you very much for coming on. I'm happy to be here, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Ottawa seems to be reeling over this story here, especially with this bombshell testimony this week by 
Gary Walburn, the former Canada's former military ombudsman, who said he told Sajan about this allegation of misconduct uh, by General Vance three years ago. Why was that not properly investigated? Well, I think it. I think it was. I think uh, the ombud brought uh, confidential, and as determined by the PCO, unactionable information to the political office. Like, he, he should have sent that to the Sexual Misconduct Response Center or either to the Provo Marshal. But those were the avenues that were available to him. But bringing it to the minister, I mean, right away you're going to make it political. We can see right now it's become political, right? But well, there are... Go ahead. Well, I, I think the minister should, should have done something here when he received this information. So let me, let me play this clip here for you. So this is Gary Walborn, Canada's former military ombudsman, uh, in committee testimony this week, uh, recalling a meeting that he had in 2018 with the defense minister, Harjit Sajan. And you're going to hear him describe here how he tried to present evidence of sexual misconduct by General Vance three years ago and how the minister reacted. Let's have a listen to that. Back in March 1st, 2018, General Vance had uh, serious allegations of sexual misconduct. Um, and what was the minister's mood and his uh, uh, reply to, to this uh, report that you're presenting to him? What was his mood like? Um, the meeting kind of ended right around that point in time. Uh, I did tell the minister what the allegation was. I reached into my pocket to show him the evidence I was holding, and he pushed back from the table, said no, and I don't think we exchanged another word. I did offer to shake his hand at the end of the meeting and said, please, do get back to me with some advice to tell me what I should do with this. And that's how it ended. So he wouldn't even look at the evidence, the physical evidence that you had? No. Okay, that's Gary Walborn there, and uh, that he was being questioned by Conservative MP James Bazan. Uh, Ms. McCrimmon, how do you, why would he not, uh, this to me is very disturbing, why would the defense minister, he's presented with disturbing allegations and he throws his hands up, doesn't he want to look at the evidence? Probably because the ombud told him that, that it was confidential, and the, the minister knows that the ombud should not be bringing him information. There are avenues in place either the SMRC or the Provo Marshal, where the ombudsman could take that information. And the minister did act on it. He sent it to the PCO, and even yeah. uh, Mr. Walborn admitted the next day the PCO called him. The PCO reached out and called him and said, we heard you had an issue that you wanted to bring forward. Will you share it with us? And at the end of Mr. Walborn, working with PCO, PCO's judgment was that that information was unactionable and okay. confidential. So okay. what are you supposed to do? Okay, PCO, for people, just what people know, is the Privy Council Office, which is an important office in Ottawa. What did the Prime Minister know about this, and when did he know it? I, I don't think he, he would have. He would have not been brought into this, especially if it was not actionable. Like, the Privy Council Office is responsible for all of the governor and council appointments in this country. And it doesn't matter, and there are hundreds of them, right? And any of them where you get a complaint, it goes to the Privy Council Office. They have the procedures in place. They have the, the security and the confidentiality to deal with really sensitive issues. And that's why the minister sent it there.
what was what was the nature of the complaint that was presented here? I like I didn't see it. Um, it wasn't presented at committee, but um, I know that Mercedes Stevenson from Global News has come out and said it was related to an email that had been sent back in 2012. But that's that's all I know is what. Uh, Mercedes Stevenson uh, shared in the media. Right, right. So the media is telling the public what's going on here. And so Global News reporting that uh, a female corporal had reached out to General Vance for career advice, and he had offered to give her some career advice. And what she got instead was an email uh, asking if she was interested in going on a vacation at a clothing-optional vacation destination. Can Can you confirm that that's what the email was about? No, I can't. Uh, you should ask Mercedes. Mercedes okay. might be sh- Well, you're the chair. You're the chair of the, def- the email. You're the chair of the def- you're the chair of the defense <laughs> no, committee. How come how come I can't ask you about it? I got to go talk no, to a reporter? Yes, you do because wow. I I don't have access to that kind of information, right? Do you, th- do you think you should as the chair of the defense committee? Well, I mean, now that it's public, yes. Now that it's public. But uh, I have not seen it. I have seen what Mercedes has tweeted about it, and I, you know, I have to trust that, that she is telling the truth. She always she does, right? Yeah, she does. So she's I, a, she's a know, great that's reporter. That's what Mercedes has said, but I have to credit her with yeah. where I have that information from. Yeah, no, I give her credit too for telling the public what's going on. That, that's excellent. She's a terrific reporter. The Prime Minister, Globe, the Globe and Mail is reporting this morning that a top staffer in Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan's office told the Prime Minister's office all about this three years ago, that his chief, the Defence Minister's chief of staff told an advisor in Prime Minister Trudeau's office about these troubling allegations. Is that? Can you confirm that? No, no, I can't. I can't confirm that at all, and that would actually surprise me quite a bit, because there really are very strict protocols in place when you're dealing with sensitive information. Now, I did read some of the article that said that she um, she reached out to Mr. Walborn to make sure that PCO had reached out to him. So this was the minister's staff, again, Following up on the issue, not they didn't drop it or ignore it. This yeah. was the minister staff following following up Mr. Walborn, making sure that he had been in contact with the PCO and the PCO, the Privy Council Office, were the right people to take this kind of a complaint to. Ms. McCrimmon, would you agree that this has been bungled when these allegations were brought forward three years ago? There should have been a more robust review and an investigation of this, right? No, uh, like wow. the, the, this is the problem. The Privy Council mm. Office, if they determine, like this is somebody's future and reputation on the line, and there are legal requirements to follow. So if 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 you can't just go in, and I know from my, and I also from my experience in the military, those protocols are there to protect the people who have the courage to come forward. And the last okay. thing you want to do is to diminish those protections. I think the minister did the right thing, took it to the mm. people who have the power to call an independent investigation if one was warranted. But they came okay. back and the report is that the information that they got from Mr. Walburn was unactionable. And 
I don't know precisely what that means, but it means that kind of uh, the minister has very little he can do when PCO tells him that what was in there was unactionable. Okay. Thank you for coming on today. Okay, it's my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. I'm grateful to you for that. That is Karen McCrimmon. She is a Liberal MP. Everyone was else was asked to leave the room. The meeting was between myself and the minister when the discussion about the sexual allegation was brought forward. Only him and I were in the room. Okay, welcome back. That was Gary Wellborn, the voice there of Canada's former military ombudsman, describing this meeting back in 2018 between himself and Canada's uh, uh, National Defense Minister, Harjit Sajjan, where he said he brought forward allegations of sexual misconduct by the former head of Canada's military. And uh, we played the clip earlier where he said the minister didn't want to see the evidence, threw up his hands, didn't want to see it. Let's talk uh, to James Bazan now, Conservative MP. He is the vice chair of the Committee on National Defense. Thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it a lot. I know you heard my interview before the break there with Karen McCrimmon, uh, the Liberal MP, who's the chair of your committee. Um, and I asked her, wait, why wasn't this thing properly investigated at the time? And she says it was. What do you say? Well, I almost feel sorry for Karen that she has to come out uh, on behalf of the Liberals and try spin this because it's a losing situation. You know, yeah. Gary Walborn went to the only person in his chain of command, which is that he reports directly to the Minister of National Defense, Harjit Sajan, and he went to Minister Sajan looking for advice on behalf of uh, the complainant. And she right. was looking for some protection. you got to remember, we're dealing with the top military officer in Canada, right. chief of defense staff, Jonathan Vance. And so she knew that if she brought it up through the normal command, including taking it to the, um, over to the sexual misconduct response center, that it would ultimately land back in the hands of the chief of defense staff. And how would you have a fair uh, investigation if the, the chain of command would be able to obstruct and block and, and, you know, interfere with that investigation. So she was, and, and also she was concerned about whether or not she, there was going to be opportunity for her to advance in, in her career. So yeah. uh, this was a big step for her to go to, to, to the ombudsman, Gary Walborn, who is a just celebrated uh, civil servant who worked in national defense and veterans affairs and transport uh, over his uh, long career. Uh, is respected and loved uh, in the military and by parliamentarians of all political stripes, I can tell you that. And so for them to actually do this step of, of trying to discredit him now is disgusting. So let's okay. look at, at, at really that, that, you know, he was trying to do what was right for her and came to Minister Sajin for advice, and Sajin, you know, covered his eyes and pushed away and didn't even want to look at the evidence. He threw, it, threw his hands up and said he didn't want to look at it. I, yes. I find I find that extraordinary. You know, when we're talking about allegations of sexual misconduct by the top military officer in the country, as you said, people got to keep in mind, we're talking three years ago when this allegation was brought forward, 2018. This guy did not retire until December. So what? this is obviously bungled. He's under investigation now. There should have been an investigation back then. When, when this first first came to light, what did, let me ask you this. What did the prime minister know, and when did he know it? Well, that's what we should be doing at committee, is getting down to the bottom of when Justin Trudeau, he said to me in question period last week, 
that he uh, had only found out about it when it came. Okay, let me let me let me interrupt you there and play that for you. Okay, so we're going to hear this exchange here. This is uh, my guest, Conservative MP James Bazan, questioning Justin Trudeau on this point in question period. Let's have a listen. Was the Prime Minister briefed by the Defence Minister on the allegations against General Vance when he first received them in 2018? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, every person deserves a safe work environment. I first learned of allegations against General Vance in Global News reporting. We have no tolerance for any form of sexual misconduct. When such allegations are brought to the Minister of National Defence's attention, he has always taken them seriously and reported to appropriate authorities. We have launched an independent investigation uh, and uh, we have confidence that it will uh, go underway appropriately. Okay, it's it's interesting that you've got the Prime Minister and also his chair of the def- uh, the Defence Committee uh, both getting their information from Global News here, which is, um, I guess, reassuring and good for Global News. But, you know, should this guy have known, like, should Trudeau have known about this? I mean, the Globe and Mail is reporting this morning that his office was alerted to this three years ago. Yeah, there's no question in my mind that Justin Trudeau learned of these allegations against General Vance three years ago in 2018. Why do you, why do you say that? I mean, he's denying that. So you're saying he's lying? He, he, he can deny it all he wants because now we know that despite, you know, Minister Sajan not looking at the evidence, he had his chief of staff contact the Prime Minister's office, one of his top advisors in, in um, the name of Elder Marquis. So yeah, he, he, all of a sudden he would have had it and would have gone to issues management, I'm sure. We also know that there was contact with the Privy Council office, and the Privy Council office the very next day contacted uh, Gary Walborn, and Gary t- uh, testified to that at committee this week. So, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that the, that the paper trail actually is going to exist, you know, as committee, and you m- made this point with, with uh, Chair McCrimmon, that that we need to, um, as committee, do the hard work lifting here. And that means that we should be demanding the production of papers, which we have right to do as parliamentarians, as committee, and uh, take a look at where this, this paper trail went and why they didn't act. Like, at the end of the day, this yeah. is about the brave women and men who serve in the Canadian Armed Forces, and they want to have faith and confidence that when they have serious allegations to bring forward, that they will be taken care of. And so when we hear right. Mr. Sage and say this is that he has zero tolerance, then why did he follow up with zero action? I think you put your finger on it there, that we're talking about serious allegations, and members of Canada's military deserve to know and have faith and trust in the system that if there are allegations against senior officers that it's properly investigated, especially when it's allegations of sexual misconduct involving women members of, of the forces. Uh, we just got 30 seconds left here. You're the vice chair of the defense committee. Like where this guy's under investigation. Now the government tells us, uh, do you have faith in that investigation? Like where should this go from here? We got 30 seconds here. Well, I, I, believe, I want to make sure that investigation takes place as well as with Chief of Defense Staff uh, Art McDonald. We are uh, suggesting that our National Defense Committee expand the scope of our study to include the allegations against uh, Admiral McDonald. And, you know, I, I, again, it comes down to is that, that we have to get down to the bottom of the truth here. Unfortunately, both Prime Minister Trudeau and Minister Sajan have a history with okay. deception. Thank you for coming on. Anytime, Mike. All right, welcome back. Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Happy Friday, Keith. Oh, thank God it's Friday. Yes, TGIF for sure. Okay, happy news with another vaccine yeah. uh, approved in Canada. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is approved. Here is Dr. Sapriya Sharma, uh, Chief Medical Advisor at Health Canada, breaking the news there. 
This is the fifth vaccine that Health Canada has authorized for the prevention of COVID-19. In fact, Canada is the first major regulator to have authorized four vaccines, Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna, AstraZeneca Serum Institute of India, and Janssen. Okay. Great news. Yeah. Great news. And we're not going to get Johnson & Johnson probably until uh, at least probably midway through April. Uh, but it's just more great news. I mean, we've got four vaccines now. Johnson Johnson also, it's a one-dose, uh, one-and-done. Wow. Uh, it's uh, it's not quite as effective as the others, but it's still very effective. You know, it's it's what's showing, the effectiveness rate on it? I think it's uh, very high, more than eighty percent for uh, preventing hospitalizations and severe illness. Uh, you know, it's not Six, quite sixty-six sixty-six point nine percent effective. I'm seeing sixty-six point nine from getting the virus, but in terms of severe illness, it's more like eighty percent. All right, so but just one shot. You don't need the booster shot. You don't need the booster shot. Okay. So it's uh, it's going to be added to the mix. Again, it's a happy problem to have in terms of BC yeah. uh, trying to figure out first of all how to deal with AstraZeneca when it arrives because there's a, a shelf life for that one. It expires in early April. Uh, so they've got to figure out the, the rollout for AstraZeneca. Now a, a rollout for Johnson & Johnson, but it's not going to land in BC uh, for at least a month, and that gives uh, health authorities time to, pre to prepare. Okay. Does this set up a situation with, like, what people, which vaccine will go to which groups? You know, like you, most people would say, well, I want the Pfizer vaccine. I want the best vaccine. And I don't think you're going to get a choice for that. Yeah. Uh, only if you're over uh, probably, well, over 80 will get Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah. Over 70 probably will as well because they're most effective on older population. Dr. Bonnie Henry, though, said this week, take the vaccine that's in front of you. You right. line up for a vaccine, you, that's the one you take. If you want to wait for your age group, uh, that still has yet to be determined. Right now, it looks like uh, Pfizer and Moderna will still apply to the age groupings, yeah. but there's going to be thousands of people will be offered the vaccine ahead of their age grouping, depending on their occupation, and that will be AstraZeneca and perhaps Johnson & Johnson. Okay, four approved vaccines now, which is great. So we expect the supply of vaccine to ramp up here in the weeks ahead. And Bonnie Henry saying yesterday that better times are on the horizon, maybe by this summer. Here's Dr. Henry yesterday. Maybe I'm too optimistic, but we're going to be in our post-pandemic world by the summer if things continue to go uh, the way that we want them to. We know there's going to be snags, so I, I hesitate to say that. And, but um, you know, I think it was Eisenhower said, no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, but we are going to do our best and we are going to make sure that uh, uh, young people have that experience. And I think by the summer we're going to be able to be doing a lot more more of those connections that we need. Yeah. Dro Dropping the Eisenhower quotes yeah. there. Wow. She's had a few historical quotes yeah. over over the past year. Interesting that she would express that optimism, even though our current situation, our uh, rolling seven-day average of case numbers is the highest right now than it's been since mid-January. Uh, the number of active cases right now is the highest it's been since mid-January. Our hospitalization number is the highest it's been since the beginning of the month, I think February 5th. So even those uh, indicators are not very good, the, this shows the impact, potential impact of mass vaccination. When we get literally 4 million people with a shot in their arms, 4.3 million by July, that means we're going to open up uh, significantly. And she's talking about sporting events. She's talking about group activities. And we could we could have the border Bring it open. On. You know, Bring Washington it on. State's um, uh, way ahead of us in terms of vaccinations. But we could have the border open by the summer. We could have mass gatherings again. Okay, we had a, a skirmish yesterday, interesting, in the legislature during question period uh, with uh, the liberals complaining about some people having their second shots 
uh, canceled because, of course, Bonnie Henry earlier this week had announced they're, they're extending the period between the first dose and, and the second booster shot to four months. Now, some people had already received their first dose and were scheduled mm-hmm. to receive the second dose on the original, the original schedule, like three, four weeks later. They got last minute notifications that, no, the whole th- we're changing the whole thing. You got to mm-hmm. wait another two months now to get the shot. And, mm-hmm. and some people not happy about it. Now, have a listen to this. This is Shirley Bond, uh, the interim liberal leader here in question period, uh, asking the government about this, about people who had their second shots now canceled. Perhaps there should be a discussion with the very people that are still expecting a second dose, some of the most frail, vulnerable British Columbians. And that situation wasn't the only one. If this government is going to move to a new protocol, the very people who are expecting a second dose, and they were expecting a second dose, should at least have been told. They were promised. They believed it. Okay. The uh, the NDP government not very happy uh, getting this type of criticism, but I'll, t- I'll tell you what, though. Bonnie Henry later, though, did issue an apology, she- and here's what she said. Let's yeah. listen to Dr. Henry here. I will um, regret and apologize to those communities, uh, to the long-term care homes, and to individuals who had a second dose scheduled that had been postponed uh, or for, for several months now. Okay, your thoughts. Well, um, the first dose gives you 90% protection. The second dose gives you 93, 94%. Is that really a big difference? I don't think so. But what uh, about people who were thought, I'm getting, the, I'm getting the vaccine today, like some people were told the day before, oh, by the way, you're not getting this shot now. Very few people. Uh, yeah. Again, the, um, but again, it was a communications breakdown, I think. This came out of the blue, but it, you know, it would have, if it hadn't occurred on uh, the day it did, it would have been the day after. Would that have made a big difference? What's interesting, the Liberals are playing a very interesting uh, strategy here. Uh, this was a decision by public health. It wasn't an NDP government decision. It was public health. And the Liberals, uh, under Andrew Wilkinson, took the position they were never going to uh, question the science and question public health. Now they are questioning public health, and that's a risky strategy for an opposition party. You don't see a lot of o- other opposition parties questioning public health. Well, are they questioning the the four month delay, or it, well, they, it sounds like they well, are? Well, I think they were questioning whether some people who had been promised the second shot should should maybe have got the second shot. Well, they like but, they were promised, but they've questioned other aspects, and it's, it's interesting. They've never offered criticism, so they're they've criticized the schools uh, safe start right now. So yeah. they're siding with the BCTF. Uh, they've challenged the uh, rapid testing uh, strategy of public health. Uh, Ian Payton is now challenged. Well, agriculture critic has, has challenged the public health order that prevents people from selling uh, non-food items at uh, farmer markets, which is a public health order. That's not an NDP order. So again, it's a it's a tricky field. The opposition is supposed to be the opposition. They have to hold the government's feet to the fire. And I thought the Liberals did really good this week, pointing out there's a lot of the, we talked about this before the Williams Lake Rodeo, the P and E, the Cloverdale Rodeo you had on yesterday. Yeah, these organizations I think can make an argument. They need government assistance, and the Liberals are doing a good job prosecuting that uh, issue. It's a little trickier when you get into public health. Okay, can I tell you real quickly my uh, Walter Gretzky? Yeah. Story. Okay, Walter Gretzky sadly. The dad of, of Wayne Gretzky has passed away. My first job in newspapers was at the Brantford Expositor mm. newspaper, which is the daily in uh, Wayne Gretzky's yeah. hometown. And I got to, I got to interview. I've interviewed Wayne Gretzky 
met his dad, talked to his dad. And what I would say about Walter Gretzky is that this guy was like the uh, the quintessential kind of hockey dad for the whole country. Very, very kind, generous mm. guy. And there were lots of stories in Brantford when I was working there that if people would, Wayne Gretzky fans would show up in town, they'd go to his house, they'd walk up and knock on the door. And see the trophy room. And Walter Gretzky would say, come on in and take a look at the, <laughs> take a look at the trophy room. So Classic. That's very sad that he that he's gone. Yeah, he's getting great lots of tributes on yeah. social media to Walter Gretzky. Yeah, obviously uh, an icon yeah. of the, the hockey dad establishment. All right, welcome back to the show. Keith Baldry is my guest. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on yourself. By the way, real quick, we, we spoke earlier on the show today about the continuing controversy in Surrey with the, the secret uh, council payments there. I had Chris Sims on who was saying, like, maybe they should have recall, a recall law for local municipal councillors. Recall, I mean, uh, I we, got, we got recall at the provincial level, and it's never really worked. No, because the bar is set very high. Yeah. Um, possible to meet the the, the test. I'm not. I've never been a fan of recall legislation, but uh, I still have to say Linda Seal's interview with that counselor has <laughs> just gone viral. I mean, it has. Uh, it's uh, it's go to journalism classes, journalism schools of. Uh, you know how to interview someone who doesn't want to give you any information. Well, it was like Linda wasn't she wasn't like browbeating no. or anything. She was just you know like like you said on Twitter, just sort of she was just drowning herself, painstakingly really. allowing her to drift and slip yeah. below the waves. And uh, it was just you know uh, if you're in a hole, let them keep digging if you want yeah. because that's exactly what she did. Okay, phone me on that one too if you want the Surrey City Council secret pay raise six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number. Star 9898, toll-free in your cell. Denise and Delta, hi. Hi. Hi there. I just wanted to tell you about my elderly brother who lives in an independent home in Tawasson. Um, he was given the shot on January the 4th because they had extra from the uh, assisted living. And he was supposed to get his shot uh, over a month, his second dose over a month ago. And when he went around to the place where he was supposed to go, uh, they said they had run out, oh. and after many uh, emails back and forth to uh, the Kin Village, they uh, had uh, another vaccination on uh, Tuesday, I think, I believe it was, where he was supposed to get that second shot, and they didn't say anything about it until he got down there that very day to get the shot, and they said, no, you have to wait four months now. So oh. if he has to wait the same amount of time that those other people who got their first shot, he's way over the four months. Okay, how did he, how did he feel about that when he showed up to get well, the second shot? Oh, he, he's very, uh, you know, he's very uh, upset about it. He, yeah. He's been fussing about it since he got the first one. Yeah. yeah. Well, the first one gives him 90% protection. So there's yeah. not a lot of difference between first and second dose in terms of levels of protection. But again, uh, older senior people, their anxiety is, uh, is, this is real. And again, the communications breakdown, I think, for a, a small number of people. But nevertheless, people who, I think, um, rightly are questioning how come they weren't told. Well, this is why Bonnie Henry apologized yep. yesterday for this precise now, situation. Your, bro- you your, got brother, a guy shows your brother's up. not going to wait four months. Your brother's going to wait an extra two months. So again, it's, uh, it's, it, the clock doesn't start ticking on the four month as of the day it was announced. It's from, the, from your first dose. So right. So should be backdated. four months after he got the At first four shot. Four months from June, uh, from January 5th. Right, so we should get it two months two yeah. months from now. Okay, yeah. Kim and Poco. Hi, Kim. Hi, thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. Um, actually, my situation is exactly the same as the last caller. Um, both my dad and my sister were due to get their second shot on Wednesday, 
and uh, they went down to get it. Uh, my sister took time off work, and my dad is 90 years old. And for him, it's the anxiety. He had his ups and downs as far as uh, just, you know, I'm going to get it. I'm not going to get it. I'm going to get it. And it's been really bad for anxiety. Uh, so how, sure. how, did, how did he get the news that he was not going to get the second shot? By going down there. Just showing up. Yeah. yeah. He actually showed up at his scheduled appointment. Yeah, so that and that was he didn't get any email or phone call mm-hmm. or anything yeah. like that either. Yeah, so that that's the communications breakdown right there. So it was announced at a news conference, and it was done. It was the decision was reached the night before, actually. Yeah, and then it was rolled out in a in a live news conference. And again, communications has always been an issue in this pandemic with health authorities, and obviously. Your your dad and and others were caught. I mean, to find out when you go down there to get your well, shot. That's not, and you're not that's not very good. No, not at all. And again, Especially I don't. for I, a ninety year old. Exactly. How did he? How did he feel? How did that affect him? Um, bad emotionally. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, he was, you know, not doing too well as far as emotional goes, and uh, he's he's having a lot of emotional issues anyway, simply because my mom is in a care home and yeah. he was the like essential visitor so that's why he was getting a second shot not because of his age but i'm sorry i'm sorry to hear that i'm really thank you for sharing that story yeah it's, it's very troubling again people uh elderly people the anxiety issue is a very real issue i get that all the time from people well do you uh, think um, they should have just kept the promise to this small batch of people who were set to receive the shot yeah instead that, of having them show up at the clinic and say too bad legitimate question legitimate question yeah. i mean is, we're talking about a relatively small number of people compared to the general population yeah so maybe they could have done that let's go to linda on the line in delta hi linda Oh, hi there. Um, I was just wondering about what uh, form of government or whatever can uh, allow themselves to be, uh, to get a pay raise behind closed doors. Is this municipal, federal, provincial? Yeah, no, it was, mu- it was municipal, okay? Municipal. So it was the municipal city council in Surrey. They gave themselves this pay raise. They voted themselves the pay raise in a secret meeting, what they call an in-camera meeting. And you know what? Like, if you're going to take the raise, you should be willing to take the heat. Yep. Okay, so don't do it in secret. Don't do this sneaking around stuff. Just stand up, vote yourself the raise, take the money, and then take your lumps. To, That's the way you should do to it. Vote yourself a pay raise when you know hundreds of thousands of people are thrown out of work at the beginning of the pandemic. Many of them have returned to work, but there's still our unemployment rate is sky high. And for politicians, particularly the municipal level, which is a junior level of government, to vote themselves a secret pay raise is just uh, ridiculous. Keith, thanks for coming in. All right, have a good weekend. Have a good weekend. That is Keith Baldry, and that is Baldry's Beat. All right, welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot here on the show about the homeless encampment at Strathcona Park in East Vancouver. There's been a lot of problems at the camp, including some extremely tragic deaths and violence, but Vancouver, not the only city experiencing these problems. We've seen many cities around B.C. with large homeless populations and tent encampments, including in the city of Victoria, where many people are living in tents and vehicles in the beautiful and historic Beacon Hill Park, not far from the provincial legislature. Let's discuss now with my guest, Lisa Helps. She is the mayor of Victoria. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Mayor Helps, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, this has been a particularly tragic week at Beacon Hill Park. We've had two deaths in two days, including a a 60-year-old man, who died yesterday when a fire broke out in his van. It is so tragic. 
Mayor Helps, what went through your mind when you heard about that? I think what would go through anyone's mind, as you say, is absolutely tragic. Uh, my heart goes out to, to his family and to the family of the, the woman who died the day before. Yeah. Uh, these are tragic circumstances in a, in a province and a country as prosperous as British Columbia and Canada. We, we shouldn't have these situations happening. People shouldn't be dying outside. Yeah, his name was Mike Lockhart, um, 60 years old. There's, uh, his brother has been speaking out uh, uh, about his circumstances, that his mother had passed away a few years ago. It really hit him hard. He started drinking heavily, didn't have a job. He was living living in his van. I mean, this is this is just tragic. And the people in the park, you know, the people were banging on the van after they saw smoke coming out of the van. J- just terrible, terrible, right? And... Um, I mean, what can, what can you say to the public when, when they see this kind of thing? What I can say to the public is that uh, the city and cities across the province um, are working alongside with the provincial government and the federal government to end circumstances that find our most vulnerable citizens living outside uh, at all, but particularly in the middle of a global health pandemic. Right. Uh, we, we can and must do better, and I know, uh, you know at the provincial level, uh, Minister E.B., Minister Malcolmson, Minister Dix, uh, Minister Simons are all working as part of a cabinet committee to address uh, a model of care that's not in place right now, but that's clearly needed to uh, take care of some of the most vulnerable people out there. And as, we're working alongside them. As you mentioned, there was another death the day before at the park. Victoria police called after a woman's body found near Dallas Road, and detectives are on the case looking for witnesses there. Have you received any update on that case, or do you have any information on it or what happened there? No, I don't have anything more than what the police uh, have have released. But again, you know, really tragic circumstances. Yeah. Uh, somebody dying alone in a park. Uh, it's not the way that anyone would want to go. It's not a, a respectful or or healthy or good way to die. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And uh, you know, here in Victoria, we've doubled down uh, on efforts with Minister Eby to offer everybody who's currently living outside uh, a place. Inside, a 247 indoor sheltering opportunity is a pathway to permanent housing. Uh, BC Housing is working hard as we speak to, uh, to unlock some more spaces, but that's the answer. Housing with supports. Parks are not homes, and they're not good places for people to live. Right. This is In Beacon Hill Park, this encampment's been there for a while. Like When, when did this start, and why did it start? Is this related to the pan- pandemic? Is that when it began? Absolutely. Uh, it, uh, it is related to the pandemic uh, in cities across British Columbia and across this country. Uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, we were all told to stay home. Uh, bubbles got really small. Uh, anyone staying with extended family or relatives had to be sent out onto the street. Shelters have their numbers. So a shelter that would have hold, held 50 people could only hold 25. I mean, it's absolutely tragic. No one could have anticipated the pandemic but I think coming out of it, we sure want to prepare for what happens when something like this uh, hits again, because right. that is what caused it. You could you could see the city and cities across the country transform literally overnight. Where there were no tents, there were tents. And now it's being compounded as the pandemic continues because people are losing their homes because they're losing their jobs. And, you know, we, we can do better than this. And we've, we've got to do better than this as a province and a country. What do you say to people who say that this uh, this kind of thing should not be allowed? Like a, a tent city like that in a public park should should not be tolerated. We've heard we've heard people say the same thing in Vancouver and other communities where we've seen tent encampments in parks like this. 
I remember there was a court case a few years ago where a judge said, "Look, you, people should be allowed to shelter in a park overnight if there's if there's no if there's no housing for them, but then presumably they would be they would move along in the morning. But this is like a permanent encampment right now." Yes. Um, what I say to the public is that I don't like it any more than the members of the public who uh, don't like it, and certainly the people living in those encampments uh, don't like it any more. Uh, we responded uh, very quickly, as did other cities across the province and country. Uh, Bonnie Henry told us all to stay at home. Prime Minister Trudeau told us all to stay at home, and particularly to stay home if you're not feeling well. Uh, if you don't have a home, uh, the tent is the absolute best that you can do. And so that's why these encampments have become 247 during the pandemic. Uh, there's nowhere for people to go. There's nowhere for people to stay at home if they don't have homes. And uh, unfortunately, yeah. a tent is, is the best that uh, that's possible, and it's it's not good enough. And again, that's why we're working really hard right now over the next uh, few weeks to offer everyone in uh, outside an indoor space. Well, just picking up one of your, one of the points you made there about there's there's no there's no other place for people to go. I mean, for people who are saying like this tent encampment in this park should be shut down. I mean, if you sent you know, if you sent 100 police officers down there today and, and to clear it out, I mean, what would happen? I mean, people would just move somewhere else, wouldn't they? Or you'd just be moving the problem around? Or Well, absolutely. And, and we have seen a very, very, very low uh, COVID case count among the unsheltered population. You know, in, in, the, in the tens of people, uh, considering the, the hundreds who are living outside here in the region. And I, I do attribute part of that to... Uh, the fact that people who are unsheltered have essentially been trying to follow the same rules as people who are sheltered, which is to stay in place, to not move around, to not go out in the community if, you know, if you're not feeling well or in the early days, not at all. So, uh, there, there, I mean, I, I get, I get the public concern and I, and I share the public concern. Um, there, there is literally though nowhere else for people to go. They're not choosing to stay outside. All of the shelters here are full. Uh, so where do people go that they have no option? And again, that's really, to me, the heartbreaking piece that as a country, as prosperous as Canada is, I mean, we're, one of the, we're the envy of the world in so many ways that we have uh, on any given night across this country, 300,000 people sleeping outside. Speaking to Victoria, Mayor Lisa helps about the homeless camp in uh, Beacon Hill Park in Victoria. There are lots of other people living in parks in Victoria and other parks as well. Um, do you think that, is there any evidence that people are coming from out of town, like from outside of Victoria, in order to live in these parks? I mean, we, we often hear, well, people are coming here for the weather, or there, there's generous social services, so people are, people are traveling to Victoria to live in, in the park. They're traveling to Vancouver to live in a park. Are, are you buying that? Is there any evidence of that? Yeah, there is a bit of that for sure, uh, but I think it has less to do with the weather or the generous provision of social services than the fact that we're an urban centre. Um, I'm in touch with uh, people, uh, politicians in Toronto on a regular basis, and they are also an urban centre, and they uh, people migrate to Toronto from across Ontario because that's where the services are, uh, that's where they feel that they can get the help for the challenges that they're having. So I wouldn't say it's a Victoria or Vancouver-specific issue, uh, people move to urban centres when there aren't services available in more rural areas. And again, I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. I'm sure this is a strain on the Victoria police, just like we're seeing strains on police services in other cities when they, they've got to deal with it, with the situation. Uh, some people will make the argument, and we, we've heard this in Victoria, 
defund the police. Let's have social service uh, people go down to service the, these camps. We shouldn't have a police response in, in the park. H- how do you look at that? I mean, is that a naive way to look at it, or do you think there's some value in that? Well, I wouldn't want to call uh, anyone naive. Uh, and I do think that the police spend way too much time uh, dealing with mental health and substance use issues, which are not criminal issues, uh, which are uh, health issues. And I think uh, there's no one uh, right now who doesn't uh, understand or see that, that these are health issues. Um, and so yeah, police, though, uh, you know, if there are uh, incidents where there's violence or risk of violence, you know, police are absolutely necessary. Um but I think that there's been a conflation of uh, police presence and, and need for police uh, with mental health and substance use in, in almost yeah. everyone's minds. And the police will be the first people to tell you, this is not my job. I didn't sign yeah. up to be a police officer to take people to the hospital or to f- track people down to take their medicine. That's not that's not what they should be doing. And, you know, I'm actually quite optimistic with the Police Act review that's underway right now that, that does also involve looking at the Mental Health Act, that we are going to see some significant changes. Mayor Helps, last question for you. Do you feel like cities are kind of left to, left to, on their own to deal with these these challenges? I mean, do you feel like this in any ways this has been downloaded to municipalities? Do you need help from the province? Do you need help from the federal government here? I think it's been decades of downloading, uh, which is why we're in the situation we're in. Uh, in 1994, the federal government spent approximately $114 per Canadian on affordable housing. Fast forward to 2014, that number decreased to $58 per Canadian on, afford- uh, Canadian on affordable housing. So it is not surprising that we see the situation we see right now with uh, hundreds of thousands of people across the country sleeping on the street. What I can say right now uh, in British Columbia with Minister Eby, uh, who has been a fantastic ally with BC Housing, that we are all working together. There is no us and them. Uh, we're getting the support we need from the province. Hopefully that'll turn into units soon and uh, we'll get people out of the parks. Mayor Lisa Helps, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Have a good day.